Hello, I'm Chris Hale, and welcome to Season 2 of the Dadcast, a podcast that provides read-alouds of short fiction, poetry, and scholarly articles to help a university student. The coffee mug is filled, breakfast cake is served, and the dogs have been walked. Let's get ready for the next episode of the Dadcast. Enjoy. If Then, Chapter 3, Neither Black Nor Box, Unknowing Algorithms. The Abstract. If algorithms are multiple and variable in nature, how can they be known? The chapter draws on the concept of the black box as a heuristic device to discuss the nature of algorithms in contemporary media platforms and how we might attend to and study algorithms despite or even because of their seemingly inaccessible or secretive nature. Framing algorithms as eventful, understood as constituents that co-become, the author suggests somewhat paradoxically that algorithms are not always important. Rather, their agency emerges as important only in particular settings or constellations. The chapter argues that by shifting attention away from asking what and where agency is to when it is mobilized and on whose behalf, we may begin to interrogate the black box not as an ontological or epistemological claim, but ultimately a political one as well. The Introduction The power of algorithms can be felt in all spheres of society. Algorithms do not merely filter news or arrange people's social media feeds. They also are routinely used to help law enforcement, financial institutions, and health sector make decisions that may have a profound impact on individual lives. Yet algorithms are not the kinds of objectives and neutral decision makers that they are frequently held out to be. Examples of bias in algorithmic decision-making now abound, and scholars and policymakers are trying to figure out the best ways to govern and make these systems more accountable. A major obstacle to holding algorithms accountable, however, is to know them in the first place. Many of the algorithms that we are most concerned with and interested in, for example, those that underline popular media platforms, are often governed by trade secret protection. The algorithms running Facebook and Google are the secret sauces that give shape to the information and data flowing online. Algorithms are made to be opaque, not just to protect businesses, but due to the technical necessity of handling the complexity of the system. Knowing algorithms, then, is severely burdened by their often black box nature. As Frank Pasquale writes, Knowing what algorithms do matters because authority is increasingly expressed through them. Decisions that used to be based on human reflection are now made automatically by encoded rules that are hidden within black boxes. Algorithmic decision-making is often described as impenetrable and secretive, concealed behind a veil of code and trade law. The story often goes that, if only we could make algorithms more transparent, we would stand a better chance of governing the big corporations that make these automatic decisions on our behalf. While transparency is not just an end in itself, transparency is still seen as a necessary condition for greater intelligibility. As Barack Obama famously stated in 2009 in the opening of a memorandum of the Freedom of Information Act, 
A democracy requires accountability, and accountability requires transparency. The question remains as to what exactly it is that should be made transparent and what transparency is believed to help reveal. In her review of Pasquale's The Black Box Society, Dewandre instructively connects the recent calls for greater algorithmic transparency to what feminist scholar Susan H. Williams has called the Enlightenment vision. For Williams, the liberal model of autonomy and the Cartesian model of truth are deeply connected. The autonomous liberal is the Cartesian knower. According to the Enlightenment vision, transparency is what makes rationality, autonomy, and control possible. When something is hidden, the Enlightenment impetus says we must reveal it because knowing leads to greater control. But what if the power believed to emanate from algorithms is not easily accessible simply because the idea of origins and sources of actions that come with the Cartesian assumption of causality are problematic to begin with. By thinking around the cusp of sensibility and knowledge, I take up in this chapter the challenge of formulating an epistemological stance on algorithms that is committed to the notion of algorithm as multiple introduced in the previous chapter. That is, how to know algorithms when the algorithm is both multiple, concealed behind a veil of code, and seemingly unimpenetrable. In this chapter, I use the concept of the black box as a heuristic device to discuss the nature of algorithms in contemporary media platforms, and how we, as scholars and social actors interested in them, might attend to algorithms despite, or even because of, their seemingly secret nature. Moving beyond the notion that algorithms are black boxes, this chapter asks instead, what is at stake in framing algorithms in this way, and what such a framing might possibly distract us from asking? The questions that I want to pose in going forward have to do with the limits of using the black box as a functional analogy to algorithms. To what extent are algorithms usefully considered as black boxes? What could we possibly see if efforts to illuminate algorithms are not directed as the source code or details of its encoded instruction, but elsewhere? And what would this elsewhere be? The chapter unfolds as follows. First, I address the trope of algorithms as black boxes, arguing that algorithms are neither as black nor as boxed as they are sometimes made out to be. Next, I unpack this claim more by conceptualizing algorithms in terms of relational ontology. This implies a shift in focus from the question of what algorithms are to what they do. The argument is made that, in order to address the power and politics of algorithms, questions concerning the agency of algorithms should be focused not on where agency is located, but when. Finally, I point to three methodological tactics around which to orient ways of making sense of algorithms. Black box, the problematic of the unknown. The concept of the black box has become a catch-all for all the things we seemingly cannot know. Referring to an opaque technical device about which only the inputs and outputs are known, the figure of the black box is linked to the history of secrecy, to trade secrets, state secrets, and military secrets. The black box is an object whose inner functioning cannot be known, at least not by observation, since the blackness of the box obscures vision.
Historically, the black box refers quite literally to a physical black box that contained war machinery and radar equipment during World War II. In tracing the genealogy of the black box, von Hilgers describes how the black box initially referred to a black box that had been sent from the British to the Americans as part of the so-called Tizard mission, which sought technical assistance for the de- development of new technologies for the war effort. This black box, which was sent to the radiation lab of MIT, contained another black box, the Bagnatron. During wartime, Crucial technologies had to be made opaque in case they fell into enemy hands. Conversely, if confronted with an enemy's black box, one would have to assume that the box might contain a self-destructive device, making it dangerous to open. As a consequence, what emerged was a culture of secrecy, or what Gallison has termed radar philosophy, a model of thought that paved the way for the emergence of cybernetics and the analysis and design of complex man-machine systems. The black box readily became a metaphor for the secret, hidden and unknown. In everyday parlance, everything from the brain to markets to nation-states is now conceptualized as a black box. Algorithms are no different. When algorithms are conceptualized as black boxes, they are simultaneously rendered a problem of the unknown. As unknowns, Algorithms do not simply signify a lack of knowledge or information. The black box notion points to a more specific type of unknown. What the pervasive disclosures on transparency and accountability surrounding algorithms and trade secrecy suggest is that algorithms are considered knowable known unknowns. That is, something that, given the right resources, might be knowable in principle. All that is needed, according to popular discourse, is to find a way of opening up the black box. Indeed, a key mantra in science and technology studies, opening up the black box implies disentangling the complexities and work that goes into making a technical device appear stable and singular. The impetus for opening up the black box can also be seen in calls for greater transparency and accountability, characteristic of the audit society. In a climate of auditing, organizations are increasingly asked to be transparent about their dealings and ways of operating. Universities, for example, are asked to produce more and more paper trails, including assessment records, numbers of research outputs, and lists of funding received. As Marilyn Strathern puts it, axiomatic value is given to increased information. Today, scholars have extended the notion of auditing to the field of algorithms, arguing for the need to conduct audit studies of algorithms in order to detect and combat forms of algorithmic discrimination. While such efforts are certainly admirable, what I want to examine critically as part of this chapter is precisely the hope of intelligibility attached to calls for more transparency. There are many ways of knowing algorithms, broadly understood, besides opening the black box and reading the exact coded instructions that tell the machine what to do. Indeed, while some things are fundamentally not discoverable, the widespread notion of algorithms as black boxes constitutes something of a red herring. That is, a piece of information that distracts from other, perhaps more pressing, questions and issues to be addressed. The metaphor of the black box is often too readily used as a way of critiquing algorithms without critically scrutinizing the metaphor itself. What is gained and what is lost when we draw on the metaphor of the black box to describe algorithms? 
To what extent does the metaphor work at all? To say that something is a black box may not simply be a statement of facts. As I will discuss in this chapter, declaring something a black box may serve many different functions. Unlike the Socratic tradition, which sees the unknown as a fundamental prerequisite to wisdom, the black box renders the unknown an epistemological problem. The unknown, including the black box, is deemed problematic because it obscures vision and ultimately undermines the enlightenment imperative ode saper, dare to know, have the courage the audacity to know. For Kant, the enlightenment philosopher par excellence, not knowing is characterized by immaturity, the notion that people blindly accept someone else's authority to lead. Alas, if something is willfully obscured, the task for any enlightened mind would be to find ways of rendering it visible. Critics of the Enlightenment vision have often raised flags against the notion of exposing or decoding inner workings, as if they were a kernel of truth just waiting to be revealed by some rational and mature mind, a mind that is quite often seen as specifically male. In the Kantian tradition, the audacity to know is not just explicitly linked to rationalism, but to the quest for the conditions under which true knowledge is possible. On the face of it, then, black boxes threaten the very possibility of knowing the truth. While threatening access to a seemingly underlying truth, the very concept of the black box also denotes a device that releases rational subjects from their obligation, as Kant would see it, to find a way out of their immaturity. As Callan and Latour suggest, a black box contains that which no longer needs to be reconsidered. In discussions on technical or commercial black boxes and transparency, one of the arguments often raised in defense of the black box is the necessity to keep details closed and obscured. In writing about trade secrets, historian of science Peter Gallison makes the point that secrecy is legitimized as a form of anti-pestemology, knowledge that must be covered and obscured in order to protect a commercial formula or the like. Indeed, it seems that the entire figure of the black box is premised on the notion of anti-epistemology. Without secrecy, systems would cease to work properly. From a more technical standpoint, making the inner workings obscure helps to remedy attempts at gaming the system. As Kroll et al. write, secrecy discourages strategic behavior by participants in the system and prevents violations of legal restrictions on disclosure of data. Finally, from an engineering point of view, concealing or obfuscating large portions of code is a necessary feature of software development. As Galloway points out, obfuscation or information hiding is employed in order to make code more modular and abstract, and thus easier to maintain. Blackboxing code, in other words, reduces both the cognitive load of programmers, enables the writing of new portions of the code, or the des design new features or functionalities, without having to think about every little detail of how the system works. When algorithms are positioned as black boxes in current discourses, it is usually to problematize the fact that many have harmful or discriminatory effects. Particularly within legal circles, repeated calls have been made for opening up the black box of algorithms. As Pasquale argues, Without knowing what Google actually does when it ranks sites, we cannot assess when it is acting in good faith to help users. 
and when it is biasing results to favor its own commercial interests. For Pasquale, what is worrisome is the knowledge asymmetry inherent in the black box society, or what he calls the one-way mirror of knowledge. Important corporate actors have unprecedented knowledge of the minutiae of our daily lives. While we know little to nothing about how they use this knowledge to influence the important decisions that we and they make. This knowledge asymmetry impinges new power relations, not just between corporations knowing more and more about the people it monitors, but also between corporations themselves. Ultimately, undermining robust competition. Thus, legal scholars, especially in the US context, are now intensifying calls for greater transparency, asking corporations to make their workings more transparent. As Pasquale provocatively puts it, you can't form a trusting relationship with a black box. What then are some of the proposed solutions to the pervasive black boxing of technical details in the algorithmic society? For Pasquale, Black boxes must be revealed in order to counteract any wrongdoings, discriminations, or bias these systems may contain. Algorithms should be open for inspection, if not by the public at large, at least by some trusted auditor. Here, opening up may simply involve making source code accessible. As Citron and Pasquale argue in the context of detecting bias in credit scoring systems, to know for sure, we would need access to the source code, programmers' notes, and algorithms at the heart of credit scoring systems to test for human bias, which, of course, we do not have. Others are more skeptical about the demands for transparent source code, pointing out that such calls are not taking account of the many adequate reasons for not making every detail fully transparent. However, opening up the black box of algorithms may also imply opening up the conditions under which algorithms can be legally audited from the outside. As a recent lawsuit filed in the U.S. federal court by researchers Sandvig and colleagues attest, the law may constitute an additional barrier to access, in this case preventing researchers from collecting data to determine whether online algorithm results in discrimination. While the many calls for greater transparency certainly hold merit, what I want to argue in the following is that knowing algorithms need not necessitate opening the black box. In fact, the black box may not even be the most adequate notion to use when thinking about the ontology and epistemology of algorithms. Unknowing algorithms. While it is true that proprietary algorithms are hard to know, it does not make them unknowable. Perhaps paradoxically, I want to suggest that while algorithms are not unknowable, the first step to knowing algorithms is to unknow them. By unknowing, I mean something akin to making the familiar slightly more unfamiliar. In the previous chapter, we saw how algorithms mean different things to different stakeholders and people from different disciplines. This is not to say that a computer scientist needs to, to dismiss her knowledge of algorithms, or that social scientists should somehow dismiss their ways of seeing algorithms as objects of social concern. Unknowing also does not simply imply blackboxing, the black box even more. Rather, unknowing means seeing differently, looking elsewhere, or not even looking at all. 
As much as calls for transparency attempt to make the object of concern more visible, visibility too may conceal. As Strather notes, there is nothing innocent about making the invisible visible. Too much information may blind us from seeing more clearly, and ultimately from understanding. Unknowing does not foreclose knowledge, but challenges it. In this sense, the kind of unknowing I have in mind can be linked to Batale's notion of non-knowledgeable, as a form of excess that challenges both our thinking and our ethics. For Batale, non-knowledge is not something that must be eradicated, but embraced as an enriching experience. Baudrillard develops the distinction between obscenity and seduction in response to Batil's thinking about the knowledge-non-knowledge divide, stating how non-knowledge is the, the seductive and magical aspect of knowledge. In other words, we might think of unknowing algorithms as a form of distancing or a form of engaging with the seductive qualities of algorithms that cannot always be explained in fully rational terms. On a practical level, unknowing algorithms may simply imply opening the black box of one's own assumptions about knowing algorithms. For a computer scientist, this may imply knowing more about the social dynamics impinging on the data that algorithms are designed to process. Conversely, for social scientists and humanities scholars, it might imply knowing more about how computers and algorithms make decisions. On a more theoretical and conceptual level, unknowing algorithms implies confronting the limits of the metaphor of the black box itself, grappling with what Karen Nora Katina calls negative knowledge. The task is to identify the limits and imperfections of the black box metaphor. For Nora Katina, quote, negative knowledge is not non-knowledge, but knowledge of the limits of knowing, of the mistakes we make in trying to know, of the things that interfere with our knowing, of what we are not interested in and do not really want to know." End quote. Unknowing algorithms as a first step in knowing them would be to engage more actively in addressing the things that seem to interfere with or keep us from knowing. Indeed, what I want to argue is that the metaphor of the black box itself constitutes such interference. In our attempts to open the black box, what frequently gets ignored is the question of whether the metaphor of the black box holds at all. It might be easier and more tangible to think of the algorithms as black boxes because it allows the analyst, policymaker, or outside critic to call for more transparency and openness as a practical means for making power brokers accountable. For all its alleged blackness, the box not only conceals the code that critics want to reveal, it also conceals the fact that algorithms may not even be as black or as boxy as they are often held out to be. Multiple Processual Heterogeneous Relational Ontology and Algorithms The central focus in this chapter has to do with the possibilities and challenges of knowing algorithms that are commonly described as black boxes. What I've argued so far is that the metaphor of the black box conceals its own limitations as an epistemic device by encouraging the enlightenment impetus of unveiling, of opening the black box, positions visibility as a conduit for knowledge and control. Algorithms, though, are not standalone boxes, but always part of complex systems. 
They often operate as a collection of algorithms in what are ultimately network systems. This is particularly true for the algorithms underlying platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, Netflix, or YouTube. These systems do not contain one algorithm, but a collection of algorithms working together to create a unified experience. As product owners at Netflix, Gomez, Uribe, and Hunt write, our recommender system consists of a variety of algorithms that collectively define the Netflix experience. To give an impression of the many algorithms at play in designing this overall Netflix experience, Gomez, Uribe, and Hunt list at least eight different algorithms, including the personalized video ranker known as PVR, which orders the entire catalog of videos for each member in a personalized way. The top in video ranker, which produces the recommendations in the top picks, and the page generation algorithm, which works to construct every single page of recommendations. Similarly, YouTube's video recommendation system is not powered by one single algorithm, but many, including the related recommended video suggestion algorithm, search algorithms, and content ID. Facebook is no exception. As technology reporter Will Orimus writes in Slate, the algorithm is really a collection of hundreds of smaller algorithms solving the smaller problems that make up the larger problem of what stories to show people. Their multiplicity, moreover, pertains to their constantly changing nature. As we saw in the previous chapter, Facebook is routinely described as a work in progress. This is not just to be understood as innovation speak, but quite literally as an integrated business plan constantly to improve its algorithms in order to retain users. This ethic of continuous change is by no means unique to Facebook. It is part and parcel of how most online platforms now develop their products. So-called A-B testing is integral to the culture of experimentation that governs platforms as a means of, of assessing and comparing how well different versions of the algorithm perform. A-B tests basically work like focus groups in which people are asked for their opinion on a certain product, with the important difference that most people participating in an A-B test are not aware of it. As Wired reporter Brian Christian explains, quote, without being told, a fraction of users are diverted to a slightly different version of a given web page and their behavior compared against the mass of users on the standard site. If the new version proves superior, gaining more clicks, longer visits, more purchases, it will displace the original. If the new version is inferior, it's quietly phased out without most users ever seeing it, end quote. These invisible experimentations have now become such an important part of product development on the web that for a company like Netflix, A-B test results are seen as their most important source of information for making product decisions. Typically performed as a test of two variants and on two user groups, A-B tests epitomize the logic of a constant change. At any given time, multiples of these tests are executed in parallel. At Netflix, these tests are not just performed on two variants, but often include five to 10 versions of the algorithm and typically run for a period of two to six months. As a result, there is not one Netflix to speak of, but many different permutations. The culture of experimentation complicates any effort to know algorithms as the question inevitably arises as to which version, what test group, or what time frame we're talking about. 
What I want to suggest then is that the algorithms operating in contemporary social media platforms are simply neither black nor box, but eventful. For conceptualization of algorithms, this implies a rejection of essences and permanence and an ontological shift towards a world of process and relations. The eventfulness of algorithms. Theoretically, this ontological shift is indebted to diverse but interrelated perspectives, including actor network theory and post-ANT, process relational philosophy, agential realism, and new materialism. While these perspectives do not represent a homogeneous style of thought or a single theoretical position, even among the thinkers referenced here as belonging to a specific category, they all, in one way or another, emphasize a relational ontology and the extension of power and agency to a heterogeneity of actors, including non-humans or the more-than-human. In arguing for an understanding of algorithms as eventful, I am drawing on a Whiteheadian sensibility that puts emphasis on processes of becoming rather than being. For Whitehead, actual entities or actual occasions such as algorithms are combinations of heterogeneous elements, or what he calls prehensions. Actual entities are only knowable in their becoming as opposed to their being. As Whitehead suggests, how an actual entity becomes constitutes what that actual entity is. Its being is constituted by its becoming. This is the principle of process. This view of entities as a process breaks with the more traditional views of entities as substance and essence. Indeed, actual entities are the final, real thing of which the world is made up. There is no going behind actual entities to find anything more real. This has important consequences for the analytical treatment of algorithms, since there is nothing more real behind the ways in which they actualize to form novel forms of togetherness. It's not enough simply to state that algorithms are eventful, understood as constituents that co-become. Analytical choices have to be made as to which relations and which actors to include in the study of actual entities. As Mike Michael suggests, the value of studying processes or events rests not so much on their empirical accuracy as on their capacity to produce orderings and disorderings out of which certain actualities, such as practices, discourses, and politics, emerge. What this means for an understanding of algorithms is a shift in attention away from questions of what algorithms are to what they do as a part of specific situations. At the most basic level, algorithms do things by virtue of embodying a command structure. For the programmer, algorithms solve computational problems by processing an input toward an output. For users, algorithms primarily do things by virtue of assistance. That is, they help users find something they are searching for, direct attention to the most important content, organize information in a meaningful way, provide unlimited access to information, or make recommendations and suggestions for what they want to watch or buy. The doing of algorithms can also be seen in the various ways they shape experience and make people feel a certain way. For example, in how they animate feelings of frustration, curiosity, or joy. As Introna suggests, the doing of algorithms is not simply the execution of instructions determined by the programmers. Algorithms also enact the objects they are supposed to reflect or express. 
The notion of performativity that Introna draws on here posits that algorithms, by virtue of expressing something, also have the power to act upon the world. When algorithms become part of people's everyday lives, incorporated into financial markets, or entangled in knowledge production, they do something to those domains. What algorithms do in these cases, however, cannot simply be understood by opening up the black box, as it were. This is not because, as Winner suggests, we risk finding it empty when we open the box, but rather, as Latour reminds us, all black boxes are black boxes because they obscure the networks and assemblages they assume and were constituted by. For Latour, all scientific and technical work is made invisible by its own success through a process of black boxing. In a much-cited example of an overhead projector breaking down, Latour suggests that the black box reveals itself as what it really is, not a stable thing, but rather an assemblage of many interrelated parts. When a machine runs smoothly, nobody pays much attention, and the actors and work required to make it run smoothly disappear from view. For Latour, the black box ultimately hides its constitution and character as a network, while black boxing refers to the process in which practices become reified. If the metaphor of the black box is too readily used as a way of critiquing algorithms, Latour's notion of black boxing reminds us that we might want to scrutinize critically the ways in which algorithms become. A core tenet of a relational ontology is the principle of relational materialism, the idea that objects are no mere props for performance, but part and parcel of hybrid assemblages endowed with diffuse personhood and relational agency. Concepts such as socio-technical and socio-materiality are often used to express the idea of a radical symmetry between human and non-human actors. According to this view, the social and technical are not seen as separate entities that can be considered independently of each other. The social and technical are always already engaged in symbiotic relationships organized in networks, assemblages, or hybrids. What is important on a relational account is that the, the inactive powers of new assemblages or composite entities cannot merely be reduced to its consti constituent parts. Rather, these new composite entities are able to produce new territorial organizations, new behaviors, new expressions, new actors, and new realities. This agential force is perhaps most explicitly expressed in the concept of assemblage, or more specifically, the French term agencement. As Calan points out, agencement has the same root as agency. Agencement are agencements endowed with the capacity of acting in different ways depending on their configuration. These discussions, of course, raise the tricky question of how we should think about agency in the first place. After all, it's not for nothing that agency has been called the most difficult problem there is in philosophy. If algorithms are multiple and part of hybrid assemblages, or even hybrid assemblages themselves, then where is agency located? Who or what is acting when we say that algorithms do this or that? Although scholars committed to a relational ontology may differ in terms of the ontological status they describe to entities and relations, the general answer would be to see agency as distributed. For a theory of the agential capacities of algorithms, 
adopting a relational view implies discarding any neatly ordered flow of agency. As Karen Barad points out, agency is not an attribute that someone or something may possess, but rather a name for the process of the ongoing reconfiguration of the world. In a similar vein, actor network theory sees agency as a mediated achievement brought about through forging associations. Anything, whether human or non-human, can potentially forge an association. As Baradic emphasizes, agency is not aligned with human intentionality or subjectivity. According to Latour, anything that does modify a state of affairs by making a difference is an actor. One simply needs to ask whether something makes a difference in the course of some other agent's actions or not. At the core of relational ontology lives the importance of acknowledging the relationality and agential capacities of non-humans. Perhaps more so than any other concept, the notion of assemblage has served as a way to account for the ways in which relations are assembled for different purposes. Deleuze and Parnet view assemblage as a multiplicity which is made up of many heterogeneous terms and which establishes liaisons, relations between them, where the only unity is that of co-functioning. This notion of co-functioning usefully describes how different agents view the assemblage may possess different resources and capacities to act. Viewed in these terms, the agency of algorithms cannot be located in the algorithm as such, but in the ever-changing outcome of its enactment. The implications of viewing agency as distributed are far from trivial. When we hear that algorithms discriminate or that discrimination is baked into algorithms, it may easily be understood as saying algorithms possess the agency to discriminate. While cases such as the Google Gorilla incident, Amazon's exclusion of predominantly black zip codes from their same-day deliveries, or Google's display of ads for arrest records when distinctively black names are searched, leave much to be desired in terms of algorithmic fairness and performance. The question of who or what is actually discriminating in these cases is not as straightforward to answer as the media headlines seem to suggest. Take the controversy over Facebook's trending feature. In May 2016, Facebook hit the news again after it became clear that their trending feature was not in fact the result of a neutral objective algorithm, but partly the accomplishment of human curation and oversight. Facebook had employed journalism graduates to keep checks on algorithmic produce trending topics, approving the topics, and writing headlines to describe them. The problem was that the human editors employed to oversee the trending topics happened to lean to the political left, and this, according to the news stories, could be seen in the kinds of stories that were made to trend. As the Gizmodo article first reported, in other words, Facebook news sections operates like a traditional newsroom, reflecting the biases of its workers and the institutional imperatives of the corporation. Shortly after the story broke, Tom Stocky, a Facebook executive, wrote that there are rigorous guidelines in place for the review team to ensure consistency and neutrality. The incident also prompted a letter from the U.S. Senate to Mark Zuckerberg, demanding more transparency about how Facebook operates. The letter, signed by Republican Senator John Thune, asked Facebook to elaborate on questions such as 
Have Facebook news curators in fact manipulated the content of the trending topic section? And what steps will Facebook take to hold the responsible individuals accountable? As Thune later told reporters, any level of subjectivity associated with the trending topics would indeed be to mislead the American people. What remained puzzling throughout the ordeal was the apparent lack of vocabulary available to talk about what it is that algorithms do or even are even capable of doing. As exemplified in the repeated attribution of bias, either to the algorithm or to the humans involved. Words such as bias, neutrality, manipulation, and subjectivity abound, making the controversy one of locating agency in the right place. The prevailing sense in the discourse surrounding the event seemed to be that Facebook should not claim to use algorithms to make decisions when, in fact, humans make the decisions. Of course, what was being slightly overlooked in all of this was the fact that algorithms are always already made, maintained, and sustained by humans. Yet if only the responsible people could be held accountable, the story went, it would make it easier to control or regulate such manipulations. And subjective orderings in the future. From the relational perspective, however, determining the origin of actions as if it belonged to one source only would be misleading. After all, as Latour puts it, to use the word actor means that it's never clear who and what is acting when we act, since on stage, an actor is never alone in acting. The stage in this case was clearly composed of a myriad of participants, including journalism graduates, professional culture, political beliefs, work guidelines, the trending product team, Facebook executives and management, algorithms, users, news agencies, and so on. So then what about the supposed bias of algorithmic processes? As John Naughton, professor of the public understanding of technology writes in an op-ed in The Guardian, Bias or human values is embedded in algorithms right from the beginning simply because engineers are human. Quote, any algorithm that has to make choices has criteria that are specified by its designers, and those criteria are expressions of human values. Engineers may think they're neutral, but long experience has shown us they are babes in the woods of politics, economics, and ideology. End quote. Of course, with machine learning algorithms, some would perhaps be tempted to argue that because the engineers or designers of the system are not necessarily human, concerns over the influence of human values or bias becomes less of a problem. However, just as algorithms may inherit the prejudices of prior decision makers, they may reflect the widespread biases that persist in society at large. To understand where bias might be located in the case of the Facebook trending topic controversy, it certainly helps to know something about how the trending topic algorithm works. It helps to know, for instance, that at the time of the controversy, Facebook relied on a few news outlets to determine whether a subject is newsworthy or not. This meant that heavy hitters such as the New York Times and CNN traditional media institutions played a significant part in determining whether something would actually be considered a trend or not. As suggested by the leaked internal documents used by Facebook to guide the work of its trending topics editor, 
The document designates 10 outlets as particularly central and instructs editors to only label a topic as a national story or major story based on how many of those publications place the news on their front page. These guidelines and the information about the work practices of editors and the types of decisions they have to make when faced with labeling something as particularly newsworthy or not sheds important light on the different values, mechanisms, and ideologies at play in a seemingly neutral and objective decision-making process. Furthermore, it helps to know how central a role users have in shaping algorithmic outcomes. As reporter Ezra Klein puts it, the user is Facebook's most biased curator. Users matter because it is their data, their clicking behavior, preferences, network relations, and communicative actions that provide the data for algorithms to act on. Although Facebook's newsfeed is often heralded as a prime example of algorithmic finesse, the feed is far from simply automatic or without human intervention. As with the trending section, Facebook enlists human intervention of the news feeds as well. During the summer of 2014, Facebook set up a feed quality panel, a group of several hundred people located in Knoxville, Tennessee, whom the company paid to provide detailed feedback on what they were seeing in their news feeds. Later, Facebook took its panel nationwide, paying a representative sample of users to rate and review their feeds on a daily basis. They even expanded the panel overseas. More recently, Facebook has been running a survey asking a subset of users to choose between two posts that are shown side by side and pick the one that appeals to them the most. Facebook is not the only platform that humanizes algorithmic systems. Netflix, for example, employs a wide range of taggers whose responsibility is to assess the genre, tone, and style of a film's content to help determine what users might want to watch next. Humans are also in the loop when it comes to music recommendations, in which music is often presented as belonging to a special category of content that computers cannot necessarily understand. One of the selling points of Apple Music, the music streaming service developed by Apple and launched in the summer of 2015, was the fact that it relied heavily on human curators and radio hosts to provide their recommendations as opposed to mere algorithms. In an interview with the Wall Street Journal, Apple CEO Tim Cook claimed people love the human curation aspect of the streaming service. Similarly, Aja Kalia, product head of Taste Profiles at Spotify, thinks that for something as emotional as music, it is crucial to keep humans in the loop. Because computers cannot truly appreciate music, Spotify employs a team of 32 music experts around the world to curate playlists that are updated on a weekly basis. Around the same time that Apple Music was launched, Spotify introduced Discover Weekly, an algorithmically generated playlist that would get closer to cracking the emotional standard of human taste. The algorithms behind Discover Weekly provide users with a recommended playlist every Monday based on the user's unique taste profile, compiled by comparing her taste to the playlists of other users who have been featured the same songs and artists that she liked. Then, the algorithm goes through the other songs that the related people have added to their playlist, but the target user has not yet heard, based on the assumption that there is a good chance she might like them too. 
Matthew Ogle, who oversees Discover Weekly, describes this process as one of magic filtering. However, algorithms are just one aspect of this magic. As the majority of media reports on Discover Weekly emphasize, the main ingredient is other people and their curated playlists. Reminiscent of what seems to be a broader rhetorical strategy surrounding big data and algorithms on part of media platforms, Ogle insists that thinking of Discovery Weekly in terms of algorithms misses the point, since the whole thing is built on data created by humans. It's just the algorithms are connecting the dots on a massive scale. Discovery Weekly is humans all the way down. These examples do not merely show how humans are always already implicated in algorithms, whether as end users providing the data input from which algorithms learn or the human experts employed to help algorithms compute things such as musical taste or the tone of the film. They're also meant to illustrate the pothole of attributing agency to either an algorithm or a human. The point here is not that we need to choose to whom or what agency most obviously belongs. It is not that agency is with the designers, the users, or the algorithm. A relational perspective precisely disavows any essentialist or isolated explanation of either human or non-human agency. Rather, it is a matter of accounting for the matter in which the assemblage or coming together of entities becomes more or less human, more or less non-human. As it was suggested in the previous chapter, Algorithms have a variable ontology, meaning that the questions of whether agency operates cannot be conclusively answered. What needs explaining then is the continuum of variation. In the following, I want to suggest that one way of answering what makes an algorithm more or less technical slash non-human or more or less social slash human can be done by shifting attention away from questions of where agency is located to questions of when agency is mobilized and on whose behalf. When is an algorithm. The case of Facebook's trending controversy and other instances of humanizing algorithms do not merely call the source of agency into question, but suggest that the more politically poignant question to ask is when agency is located on whose behalf or for what purpose. The real controversy was not the fact that Facebook employs journalism graduates to intervene in an algorithmic decision-making process by adding their editorial human judgments of newsworthiness to the mix. The controversy lies in the selective human and non-human agency. What became apparent in the public reaction to the Facebook trending controversy was the fact that algorithms only matter sometimes. This, I want to suggest, constitutes an important dimension of thinking around the politics of algorithms. Politics not as what algorithms do per se, but how and under what circumstances different aspects of algorithms and the algorithmic are made available or unavailable to specific actors in particular settings. By shifting attention away from the proper source of action toward the practice of mobilizing sources of action in specific circumstances, we might be able to understand both how and when algorithms come to matter. The mattering of algorithms is taken up again in chapter 6. Why is it that sometimes an algorithm is blamed for discrimination when, on a similar but different occasion, a human is accused of bias? 
Why is it contentious that Facebook employs journalism graduates in the process of curating the trending feature when, in the context of news organizations, the opposite seems to be considered problematic? Put differently, why is it okay for Facebook to use algorithms when doing the same thing is considered problematic for a news organization? These and similar questions could not simply be answered by adhering to a vocabulary of essences. Algorithms are not given. They are not either mathematical expressions or expressions of human intent, but emerge as situated, ongoing accomplishments. That is, they emerge as more or less technical slash non-human or more or less social slash human because of what they related to. In the case of the Facebook trending topic incident, the algorithm shifted its configuration as a result of controversy. In the face of widespread accusations against the subjective biases of the human editors, Facebook decided to fire the 26 journalism graduates contracted to edit and write short descriptions for the trending topics module. In a bid to reduce bias, Facebook announced and said that they would replace them with robots. While still keeping humans in the loop, a more algorithmically driven process, according to Facebook, would allow our team to make fewer individual decisions about topics. What is of interest in this case is not whether algorithms or humans govern Facebook's trending topic, but how the different categories were enlisted and made relevant in the context of the the controversy. That is, the algorithm emerged as objective and neutral while humans were seen as subjective and biased. The point is that there is nothing inherently neutral about algorithms or biased about humans. These descriptive markers emerge from particular contexts and practices. It could have been otherwise. From the perspective of relational materialism, the questions that matter the most are not philosophical in character, but political. Returning to the notion of ontological politics introduced at the end of the previous chapter, engaging with the question of how algorithms come to matter in contemporary society is not about trying to define what they are or at what points they act, but rather about questioning the ways in which they are enacted and come together to make different versions of reality. I think with the many contrasting examples of controversies involving the algorithm human continuum show is how algorithms are not inherently good or bad, neutral or biased, but are made to appear in one way or the other, depending on a whole range of different factors, interests, stakeholders, strategies, and indeed politics. The term ontological politics is precisely meant to highlight how realities are never given but shaped and emerge through interactions. Instead of determining who acts or discriminates for that matter, the interesting question is what and when an actor becomes in the particular ways in which the entity is active. By shifting attention away from asking what and where agency is, to when agency is, and to whom agency belongs in specific situations, we may begin to see how the notion of algorithms as black boxes may not just be an ontological and epistemological claim, but ultimately a political one as well. As I said in the beginning of this chapter, positioning something as a black box serves different functions. The black box of algorithm is not simply an unknown, but in many cases constitutes what Lindsay McGooey has called a strategic unknown, understood as the strategic harnessing of ignorance. 
As Magui asserts, strategic unknowns highlight the ways in which cultivating ignorance is often more advantageous, both institutionally and personally, than cultivating knowledge. In the case of disaster management, for example, experts' claims of ignorance soften any alleged responsibility for the disaster or scandal in question. By mobilizing unknowns strategically, organizations and individuals can insist that detection or prior knowledge was impossible. These forms of ignorance are frequently mobilized in discourses on algorithms and software as well. In fact, it seems that machine learning and the field of artificial intelligence often appear as entire fields of strategic unknowns. At the most fundamental level, the operations of machine learning algorithms seem to preclude any form of certainty because the machine learns on its own without being explicitly programmed to do so. There is no way of knowing what exactly caused a certain outcome. As Duras reflects on the advent of machine learning, during my years of computer science training, to have an algorithm was to know something. Algorithms were definitive procedures that led to predictable results. The outcome of the algorithmic operation was known and certain. Machine learning techniques, on the other hand, produce unknowns. Quote, when my credit card company deems a particular purchase or stream of purchase suspicious and puts a security hold on my card, the company cannot explain exactly what was suspicious. They know that there's something odd, but they don't know what it is. End quote. Indeed, in context of machine learning, the decisional rule emerges from the specific data under analysis in no ways, in ways that no human can explain. While this fundamental uncertainty may be disgruntling to those interested in knowing algorithms, it can also be used to restore what Magui calls knowledgeable alibis. The ability to defend one's ignorance by mobilizing the ignorance of higher-placed experts. As Magui writes, quote, A curious feature of knowledgeable alibis is that experts who should have known something are particularly useful for not knowing it. This is because their expertise helps to legitimize claims that a phenomenon is impossible to know, rather than simply unknowable by the unenlightened. If the experts didn't know it, nobody could. End quote. People routinely defend their lack of knowledge of algorithms by alluding to the notion that they could not have known because no one else can either. As the title of a recent article in The Atlantic Telling It puts it, not even the people who write algorithms really know how they work. To what extent does this notion of unknowability hold true? While it might indeed be difficult to explain what patterns in the data are being caught by the model of a machine learning algorithm, as the above statements seem to suggest, the general principles and operational logics of these systems are very well known. That's why they are used in the first place. The claim that no human can really explain the working of an algorithm or the decisional rules emerging from pattern recognition might be more about the organizational construction of software than the algorithm itself. As discussed in the previous chapter, machine learning systems of massive scale are really network sets of machine learning algorithms that are wired together to compute some emergent property, e.g. search. When we are dealing with a news feed or a single engine, we never deal with a single algorithms that train single models from a table of data. They are machine learning systems pieced together and layered like Lego. 
Often, several machine learning systems are doing the same task, but a user will only see the results aggregated from the top three performing ones. If any of the top three start to perform poorly, they will fall out and be replaced automatically. What we need to remember is that all of these layers and structures are built by, by people and teams. And so the ability for one person to understand everything is very much the same challenge as understanding how the University of Copenhagen works. Yet at the same time, teams can build heuristic understanding of their algorithmic systems, feelings of what might cause it to break or what is causing the bottleneck, which allows them to work and do their job. Ignorance of higher placed experts, however, should not detract us from knowing differently. Now, if the exact configuration of the algorithmic logic cannot be easily traced, say for example by examining what the machine learned at different layers in a neural net, it should not keep us from interrogating the oddity itself, particularly since the allusion to ignorance often comes in handy for the platforms themselves. As Christian Sandvig suggests, platform providers often encourage the notion that their algorithms operate without any human intervention and that they are not designed but rather discovered or invented as the logical pinnacle of science and engineering research in the area. When things do not go exactly as planned and platforms are accused of censorship, discrimination or bias, the algorithm is often conveniently enlisted as a strategic unknown. Of course, as Cal and Latour amply remind us, Black boxes never remain fully closed or properly fastened, but macro actors can do as if they were closed and dark. It is certainly odd that a particular purchase is deemed suspicious or that a credit card company cannot explain why an algorithm came to this or that conclusion. However, the knowledge of an algorithmic event does not so much hinge on its causes as it does on the capacity to produce certain orderings and disorderings. As an event whose identity is uncertain, there is an opportunity to ask new questions. In the case of the credit card company, the question might not necessarily be phrased in terms of why the algorithm came to a certain conclusion, but what that conclusion suggests about the kinds of realities that are emerging because people are using algorithms and what these algorithmic practices do to various people. In terms of transparency, questions also need to be asked of functions and expectations. When the Norwegian newspaper Aftenposten and Norway's Prime Minister Ernest Solberg called out Facebook in September 2016, accusing its algorithms of censoring the iconic Pulitzer Prize image Terror of War, they did so because they expected the algorithm to behave in a specific way. An algorithm, they suggested, should have been able to distinguish between an award-winning iconic image and normal nudity. Not only was this incident, to which I shall return later in Chapter 6, yet another example of the differential enactment of agency as exemplified in the question of whether the fault was with the algorithms or the humans. It also shows that sometimes what there is to know about algorithms may not be about the algorithm itself, but rather our own limits of understanding. Should we perhaps not just worry about algorithms being wrong, but also ask whether they do what they're supposed to do? Why was Facebook called out on censoring an image of a naked girl when in fact this is what is expected of them? 
Knowing algorithms, I want to suggest maybe just as much about interrogating negative knowledge in Norosatina's sense as it is about trying to peel the layers of a neural network or getting access to the actual source code. In other words, when trying to know algorithms, we also have to take into account what things interfere with our knowing, what we are not interested in, what we do not want to know, and why. What the figure of the black box conceals is not just the inner workings of algorithms, but also the ways in which the unknown can be used strategically as a resource to maintain control or deny liability in certain situations. In suggesting, as I have done, that the black box metaphor constitutes a red herring of sorts, the metaphor itself becomes a strategic unknown, enabling knowledge to be deflected and obscured. What needs to be critically scrutinized, then, is not necessarily the hidden context of the box, but the very political and social practices that help sustain the notion of algorithms as black boxes. The question is not simply whether we can know algorithms, but when the realm of its intelligibility is made more or less probable. That is, when are algorithms framed as unknowns, for whom, and for what purpose? Three methodological tactics. Despite the obvious epistemological limits addressed so far, I want to finish this chapter by offering three methodological tactics for unknowing algorithms. Broadly construed, these tactics correspond to the different kinds of ignorance discussed throughout this chapter and focus on tackling the seemingly black box nature of algorithms. These tactics are not meant to be exhaustive list, but as a few possible methodological routes that scholars may take when they examine algorithms as objects for cultural analysis. Reverse engineering known unknowns. Instead of following the Enlightenment impetus seeking to reveal the origin of actions, one way to proceed would be to follow the cybernetic lead. Cybernetics is the science of controlling and communication in the animal and the machine. It is concerned with understanding the relationship and feedback mechanisms between a system and its environment. As the neuropsychiatrist Ross Ashby put it in an introduction to cybernetics, cybernetics is not concerned with what things are, but what they do. In the book, Ashby dedicated a whole chapter to the problem of the black box, presented as a challenge to the engineer who had to deduce what he can of its contents. For Ashby, the black box was not necessarily an obstacle, but simply part of everyday life. The black box is not an exception, but the norm. Lots of things are seemingly hidden and inaccessible. That is, until we find the leaks, cracks, and ruptures that allow us to see into them. A first step in knowing algorithms is not to regard the impossibility of seeing inside the black box as an epistemological limit that interrupts any futile attempts at knowledge acquisition. As Ashby recognized, in our daily lives, we are confronted at every turn with systems whose internal mechanisms are not fully open to inspection, and which must be treated by the methods appropriate to the black box. Because opacity, secrecy, and invisibility are not epistemic anomalies, but a basic condition of human life, the black box is not something to be feared, but something that corresponds to new insights. When confronted with a black box, the appropriate task for the experimenter, as Ashby saw it, is not necessarily to know exactly what is inside the box, 
but to ask instead which properties can actually be discovered and which remain undiscoverable. Because what matters is not the thing, but what it does. The cybernetic lead does not ask us to reveal the exact content of the box, but to experiment with its inputs and outputs. What can be discovered and described about algorithms differs from context to context, with varying degrees of access and availability of information. However, even in the case of seemingly closed and hidden systems, such as Facebook or Google, there are plenty of things that can be known. Speculative experimentation and playing around with algorithms to figure out how they work are not just reserved for hackers, gamers, spammers, and search engine optimizers, also known as SEO. In the spirit of reverse engineering, the process of extracting the knowledge or design blueprints from anything man-made, we might want to approach algorithms from the question of how they work and their general operational logics. There are already some very instructive examples of reverse engineering algorithms within the domain of journalism and journalism studies, and in related academics called for algorithm audits. Mythologizing the works of machines, however, does not help, nor should we think of algorithmic logics as somehow more hidden and black box than the human mind. While we cannot ask the algorithm in the same way we ask humans about their beliefs and values, we may indeed attempt to find other ways of making it speak. Similar to the way ethnographers map people's values and beliefs, I think of mapping the operational logics of algorithms in terms of Technography, as Latour puts it, specific tricks have to be invented to make them, technology, talk. That is, to offer descriptions of themselves, to produce scripts of what they are making others, humans or non-humans, do. Technography, as I use the term, is a way of describing and observing the workings of technology in order to examine the interplay between a diverse set of actors, both human and non-human. While the ethnographer seeks to understand culture primarily through the meanings attached to the world by people, the technographic inquiry starts by asking what algorithms are suggestive of. Although he does not use the term himself, I think Bernard Reeder's way of scrutinizing diverse and general algorithmic techniques could be thought of as an attempt to describe the worldviews of algorithms I have in mind when I use the term technography. Ryder offers a particularly instructive account of how different technical logics, in this case the Bayes classifier, entail certain values and assumptions that inevitably have consequences for the operational logics of specific systems. Following Ashby's cybernetic lead, what is at stake in a technographic inquiry is not to reveal some hidden truth about the exact workings of software or to unveil the precise formula of an algorithm. Instead, the aim is to develop a critical understanding of the mechanisms and operational logic of software. As Galloway states, the question is how it works and who it works for. Just as the ethnographer observes, takes notes, and asks people about their beliefs and values, Ashby's observer and the technographer describe what they see and what they think they see. The researcher confronted with the black box algorithm does not necessarily need to know how much code or programming, although it is certainly an advantage. As Ashby points out, no skill is called for. We are assuming, remember, that nothing is known about the box.
In general, we might say that a good ex- way to start is by confronting known unknowns in terms of one's own limits of knowledge. What, for example, is there to know about key concepts in computer science, mathematics, or social sciences that would be useful for understanding a specific algorithmic context? Then we also have the option of tracing the many semiotic systems that cluster around technical artifacts and ensembles, patent applications and similar documents that detail and lay out technical specifications press releases, conference papers on machine learning techniques, recorded documents from developer and engineering conferences, company briefs, media reports, blog posts, Facebook IPO filing, and so on. Finally, we might want to experiment with systems as best we can or even code them ourselves. As the next chapter will show, a technography of algorithms need not imply elaborate experimentation or detailed technical knowledge, but above all, a readiness to engage in unknown knowns. Seeing the black box not as an epistemological obstacle, but as a placeful challenge that can be described in some ways, but not all. Phenomenological encounters with unknown knowns. The second tactic suggests another way of knowing algorithms, which is to bring sense to what we do not know, but know nonetheless. From a phenomenological perspective, approaching algorithms is about being attentive to the ways in which social actors develop more or less reflexive relationships to the systems they are using and how these encounters in turn shape online experience. Drawing on concepts such as tacit knowledge non-knowledge, and practical knowledge, a phenomenological approach to algorithms is concerned with understanding how algorithms are perceived and made sense of by the actors in a given situation. Positing the algorithm as an unknown known in this case is meant to highlight the productive force of personal forms of knowledge, knowledge that is gained through experience and practical engagement with one's lived-in environments. Although algorithms in the strict technical and mathematical sense of the term may remain unknowns, there are tacit forms of knowledge that linger in the background and which might have as much of an impact on the ways in which life with algorithms takes shape as the coded instructions themselves. When long-lost friends suddenly show up on your Facebook newsfeed, or a hotel that you've been looking at on a booking site materializes an ad and seems to follow you wherever else you go on the web, or Netflix just seems to be reading your mind in terms of the kind of movie you're in the mood to watch. Algorithms become locally available for analysis in terms of the kinds of experiences and effects they engender. Here, the notion of the black box is tackled by claiming that what there is to know about algorithms may not even be inside the box. As we've seen for Ashby and the early cyberneticians, The black box was not an obstacle, but a means for play and exploratory experimentation. The cybernetic notion of the black box as a basic human condition bears strong resemblance to the ways in which the psychologist Jean Paget, originally a zoologist, theorized the cognitive development of children. According to Piaget's notion of playful learning, children build up a picture of the world through making their own sense of inputs to the black box of the mind converting experience to personal understanding of concrete objects. Instead of talking about knowledge in a 
definite sense, the emphasis put on knowing as a continued and playful process. As biologists Maturana and Varela later put it in 1987, knowledge does not reflect a true world, but should rather be judged by the construction of meaning from experience. The focus is on how life takes shape and gains expression through encounters with algorithms. A phenomenological approach also considers the ways in which the algorithms are already embedded in particular circumstances. For Alfred Schultz, a pioneer in bringing phenomenology into sociological analysis, experience and the knowledge people derive from it is situated and contextual. It depends as much on various realms of relevance as it does on various social roles. Not everybody needs to know what algorithms are or how they work, but the fact that we do not understand the why and the how of their working and that we do not know anything of their origin does not hinder us from dealing undisturbed with situations, things, and persons. Using the most complicated gadgets prepared by a very advanced technology without knowing how the contrivances work is just a natural part of human life. But there are distinctions as to how relevant it is for people to know or attempt to know. A phenomenological analysis seeks out those slight transformations of relevance for an understanding of how phenomena change from being taken for granted to becoming a field of further inquiry. For example, Nick Coldry and his colleagues in 2016 recently proposed the notion of social ana analytics as the phenomenological study of how social actors use analytics to reflect upon and adjust their online presence. As they see it, a social analytics approach makes a distinctively qualitative contribution to the expansion of sociological methods in a digital age. In a world in which large-scale data analysis takes on a greater hold, it is important to investigate the ways in which actors themselves engage with increased quantification. In Schultz's terms, we might think of such actors as well-informed citizens who seek to arrive at reasonably founded opinions about their whereabouts in a fundamentally uncertain world. A phenomenological approach to algorithms, then, is concerned with excavating the meaning-making capacities that emerge as people have strange encounters with algorithms. As Chapter 5 will show, people make sense of algorithms despite not knowing exactly what they are or how they work. When the outcome of algorithmic processing do not feel right, surprise, or come across as strangely amusing, people who find themselves affected by these outcomes start to turn their awareness towards algorithmic mechanisms and evaluate it. As with the social analytics described by Coldry et al., when modes of appearance or sense of identity are at stake, actors may reflect at length on how to influence such operational logics, and in doing so, they performatively participate in changing the algorithmic models themselves, a key reason it is important to study actors' own experiences to the effective landscape of algorithms. Interrogating the configurations of strategic unknowns. The final methodological tactic that I want to address here focuses on examining algorithms as configurations in situated practices. Donna Haraway's notion of figuration is particularly instructive in this regard as it points to the individuation of figures through co-constitutive relationships. 
Throughout her work, Haraway develops the notion of figures and figuration as a means of talking about the ways in which different elements come together, both materially and discursively, to form the appearance of more or less coherent relations. The cyborg, which is probably Haraway's most well-known figure, is to be understood above all as a coalition across boundaries of identity. As a figure, the cyborg is not marked by a stable identity, but by the interaction of of different and often conflicting concepts. Figuration, then, holds together contradictions that do not resolve into larger wholes, because each idea, through conflicting, might be necessary and true. By conceptualizing algorithms as particular figurations that comprise and suggest conflicting ideas, we might be able to study the becoming of algorithms and the different ways in which the algorithms come to matter in specific situations. As figurations, the identity of algorithms is variously made and unmade, and it is the analyst's task to study when the algorithm becomes particularly pertinent and to challenge the conceptual separation between, for example, the social and the technical. Interrogating the configuration of algorithms begins with tracing out its specific cultural, historical, and political appearances and the practices through which these appearances come into being. In this chapter, I have described this process as one of moving from a question of where the agency of algorithm is located to when it is mobilized, by whom, and for what purpose. What is at stake here, then, is not the black box as a thing, but rather the process of black boxing, of making it appear as there is a stable box in the first place. If the metaphor of the black box is used too readily as a way of critiquing algorithms, Latour's notion of black boxing reminds us that we might want to scrutinize critically the ways different actors have a vested interest in figuring the algorithm as a black box in the first place. As discussed in this chapter, the alleged unknowability of algorithms is not always seen as problematic. It can be strategically used to cultivate an ignorance that is sometimes more advantageous to the actors involved than knowing. By referring to the notion of strategic unknowns as part of this third methodological option, the intention is to point out the deeply political work that goes into the figurations of algorithms as particularly epistemic phenomena. In chapter 6, I turn to these questions anew by looking at how algorithms variously become enlisted, imagined, and configured as part of journalistic practices and products. Concluding remarks. Let this be the general conclusion. For every epistemological challenge the seemingly black-boxed algorithm poses, another productive methodological route may open. The complex and messy nature of social reality is not the problem. Just as algorithms constitute but one specific solution to a computational problem, we cannot expect a single answer to the problem of how to know algorithms. Borrowing from law, one thing is sure. If we want to think about the messes of reality at all, then we're going to have to teach ourselves to think, to practice, to relate, and to know in new ways. In this chapter, the black box was used as a heuristic device to deal with this mess, not by making the world less messy, but by redirecting attention 
to the messiness that the notion of the black box helps to hide. Not to be taken as a definitive exhaustive list of well-meant advice, I offered three steps to consider when researching algorithms. First, do not regard the impossibility of seeing inside the black box as an epistemological limit that impinges any futile attempts at knowledge acquisition. Ask instead what parts can and cannot be known and how, in each particular case, you may find ways to make the algorithm talk. Second, instead of expecting the truth to come out from behind the curtain or to lay there in the box just waiting for your hands to take the lid off, take those beliefs, values, and imaginings that the algorithm solicits as point of departure. Third, keep in mind that the black box is not as seamless as it may seem. Various actors and stakeholders once composed black boxes in a specific historical context for a specific purpose. Importantly, they evolve, have histories, change, and affect, and are affected by what they are articulated to. While we often talk about algorithms as they were single stable artifacts, they are boxed to precisely appear that way. This chapter has many notes and explanations that you should refer back to to better understand the concepts and major points which the author has made throughout the chapter. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to check the actual text for notes and additional information and graphics. And remember, every day is a learning day.